first day of December. So, you know, I told y'all yesterday um, that I was getting ready for Advent, and this year I'm really looking forward to Advent. Because uh, the last couple of years, I've just kind of passed Advent by, you know, because I didn't have a church home. Um, and 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 I, we've had good Advent so, uh, 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 experiences in my, my, my church. So, um, but anyway, this year I just felt I just felt called back to thinking about Advent. And uh and I, you know, I follow um Hannah Brencher, who I got to know. I don't know her, but I got to know her. I think she was a Yale student many, many years ago, but um she's out in the world. She's a published author, she's amazing. And uh and she got started doing the world needs more love letters. And so she would leave love letters around around New Haven and places and people would find them and it would just be the right thing that somebody would find. So I followed her in doing that. And then when she launched um, the world needs more love letters and, and, um, and said more love letters, uh, I just started participating in the love letter writing campaigns. Um, uh, but she has since grown into her faith and it's been a joy to watch. And so I've been following along because we share very similar views on faith in the world and how we see ourselves in God's light. So anyway, I said to y'all yesterday that I would I would follow along with the Advent. And I, I have all 25 days. And, and, and as she has said, as I said yesterday, she start, Advent usually starts that first Sunday after Thanksgiving. Uh, but we're starting a bit early, a couple of days early, only because... Um, uh it's a lot to cover and she didn't want to she didn't want to have to edit or cut things down so even though y'all are not with me on the weekends for the next 25 days however it shakes out i'll i'll start the show with the with the reading of of advent and i and you don't have to be christian to listen to this you can discern whatever you want to discern from it um it, it's not it's i mean yes it's rooted in christianity but it's not rooted in Christianity. You know what I mean? Like you can take what you need. You know what I used to say? Take what you need and leave the rest by the side of the road for somebody else. So day one, the purpose. Uh, and the scripture is Mark 6, 1 through 6 and John 1, uh, 46. So, and this is, this. these are uh, Hannah Brench's words. This is, this is her essays. These are her uh, avid uh, missives. So it happens the same way every year. The store aisles fill up with garland and lights before Halloween has a fair slot shot of arriving on the calendar. Glittering ornaments and tubes of wrapping paper take over the shelves. The artificial trees are hauled out from crawl spaces and storage closets earlier uh, than the year before. We begin this dizzying season once again, where we vow to ourselves that this year, yes, this year, we will genuinely savor it. We will be present. We will be unhurried. We will be here, really here, for the Christmas season. And it seems that every year passes by with the same outcome. We hardly stop. 
We savor in small pockets. We grab at the season, but it passes too quickly. December 26 arrives. We stack the trees by the roadside. We pull out all our new planners and prepare for the next thing on the calendar. We tell ourselves, next year. Next year will be the year we get this season right. Next year, we will try again. This is why I wrote an Advent series, Hannah Bringer, a 25-part journey through the story of Jesus' birth. I was tired of walking out of the Christmas season emptier and more tired than I have walked into it. I wanted to stop making empty promises about how I would reclaim the wonder of the season. So I set on a hunt for something more. I dedicated hours upon hours to researching the Christmas story. I dug my heels in deeply, only to discover that everything I thought I knew about this story of a baby in a feeding trough was wrong. It's not the same story I saw in church growing up. It's so much better. There's a story in Mark where Jesus goes back to his hometown to teach and perform miracles. At first, the people in the crowd are impressed with him, but in the next breath, they are cutting him down. They started saying things like, Mary's boy? We've known him since he was a kid. There's no way there's anything special about him. Nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. The text says that Jesus couldn't do much of anything there. Their lack of belief discounted any miracle in their midst. As Hannah wrote this series, God kept reminding her of this story, of how dangerous it is to be in a space where we think we know everything there is to know about something or someone. We suck away the wonder, the chance for miracles to occur with our stubborn mindsets. I pray that God would restore our wonder. We would have profound moments of thinking. Wow, I've never seen that before. That's a miracle. More than anything, I want us to be amazed by this story. I'm about to tell, not because I'm writing it, but because God wrote a deeply personal, wildly beautiful story by sending his son to earth for us. It's more layered than you can imagine. There is so much to unpack. There is so much to marvel at. Trust me. If you think you know what you're putting yourself into, God has more in store for you than you can imagine. Throughout the next 25 days, we will be trekking chronologically through the story of Jesus's birth, piece by piece. At times we will stop, pitch a metaphorical tent, and camp out in parts of the story to get the most profound understanding of the intricate details. Each piece contains a section for scripture to reference and another section called, steal this prayer. I know praying can be hard sometimes. And when we get nervous about communicating with God, so I wrote a prayer for each day to help us navigate through this. It's there for you to take and make your own. Without further talk, all that's left to do is to propel ourselves straight into the heart of the story. I cannot wait to be your gentle guide through this season. Happy Advent, friend. Grab a cup of coffee and your Bible or whatever sacred scripture you like. It's time to dig.
So here's still this prayer. Dear God, would you open my eyes and give me a new way of seeing the story I've heard hundreds of times? Clear out any roadblocks that might stop me from seeing the miracles in front of me. Restore my wonder and help me to savor this season before it's too late. I'm ready to make room for, for the light. Now, I, I edited her. She said, King. I never like to refer to the Christ as King for various reasons. Uh, I don't like to refer to God, or I mean, as Christ, uh, as King. I like to refer to Christ as the light. So I'm ready to make room for the light. And that's where I am. And that's, this is day one of Advent. I hope you travel along with me. So, so anyway, that's where we are. <laughs> Buckle in, pull a Bible out or some sacred scripture. Uh, I'm going to write my journal later today. Uh, about the day because I didn't put my hands on one last night. Of course I didn't because I went to the theater to see a play. I went to dinner. I went shopping. I shopped local yesterday. I stopped downtown at Idiom, which is celebrating 18 years. It was lovely to see Kim. And then I popped into Dwell, um, which is celebrating 10 years. And then I uh, I popped into uh, the other little soap, soap petty place, which is lovely. Bought some soap in there. Uh, and then uh, was downtown for dinner at Harvest, which was lovely. Had a hanger steak. Uh, uh, caught up with uh, Ife and Carla, who works at your know, rep. Um, and so we all had dinner together. And then we went to to see uh, the Salvagers. I will withhold my opinions on salv Salvagers until way after the uh, play closes, because I don't want to. I don't want to influence people. And, you know, that really doesn't stop me anyhow, anyway. Like, you know, I don't care about influencing people. But I just, I love the production of it. I, the production, I think, was spot on. Innovative and creative and gorgeous to look at, I thought. Like, I enjoyed that part. But the the, the theme and the tone, it's just, you know, I, I didn't enjoy it. But that's all right. People should go see it. For their for themselves, you know. Uh, and that that was last night. And uh let's see. I usually do a recap by the weekend, but uh um since I was out last night, I thought, well, let me let me get into it a little bit. <laughs> let me let me say uh safe travels to uh Ife, uh Ify and uh Professor Foreman. Um, they are on their way to Marrakesh, and they're going to stay at a Janan Hamsna. And uh, I'm delighted. I, I had sent Marianne a message yesterday, and she said she had heard from them, and they have worked with the concierge on some planning their trip there. So, so I'm delighted. So I, I, I hope they will love Marrakesh and the mystery and the romance of Marrakesh the way that I did, you know. And and Janan Thompson is such a romantic place. You know, it's a place where you you want to have a rendezvous or or, or an affair. It's it's it lends itself to that kind of uh, atmosphere, you know, and a in a good way. Like it's a full on resort hotel kind of thing. But when you're there, you really feel like you're at your house and and you're the only people there. <laughs> 
it just ha- it just gives that vibe. I thought so. I'd be interested in hearing what they say. Uh, and I gave I gave I sent uh, Ify, uh some links to find the the shops in Marrakesh. Good luck, girl. I couldn't tell you how to get there. Just show them to the, show them to the concierge, and maybe the driver can figure out where to go. I don't know. <laughs> the the marketplace, you know. And if you've seen like shows on movies and stuff, you know, you can walk down a seemingly unassuming alley. And like, I don't see any damn market. And then the next thing you know, you take a corner and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> bustling with color and sounds and smells. Uh, and, and it's like, Marrakesh is like that. You could just be meandering and it's calm and it's, you know, it's it's moody. And then the next thing you know, full on hustle bustle, you know, fabric and pots and things and, uh, you know, dates and uh, all kinds of food and 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 I would invite them to see the night market. I love the night market. We did the electric slide in the night market, child, in front of the uh, in the Medina, which is just means old city in Arabic. And we we did the electric slide in front of the mosque. <laughs> not not on the grounds of the mosque, in front of the mosque. The mosque was was our backdrop, and uh, and people were just looking at. I know they were like, "Them damn Americans, them black ass Americans, come over here." And, and people gathered around us and was watching us do the electric slide. <laughs> that was that was on my my bucket list. Listen, you got your list, I got mine. Then my my I wanted to do. There was a few things that I definitely wanted to do. I, I think it was like four things. I did everything except one thing. Um, I I I wanted to uh, electric slide. I wanted to go to the night market, and I did in the Medina, and we did that, and it was hustling and bustling. I mean, it's just. It's just a feast of things. I mean, it's just if you just stay connected to yourself and don't get swept up. Um, so we did that. Uh, I wanted to hot air balloon ride over Marrakesh. We did that. Uh, I wanted to go. Uh, I wanted to go to the uh, a- uh, the African Contemporary Museum. I did not do that, but I did go to the Museum of Adornment where I got uh, my ring. And my friend, uh, my good friend and great love, Amazara, bought me the earrings that I wore with my my birthday gown. And I bought myself a ring um, that looked like the plants that grow. It's a it's blue, but it's in the shape and it's leather. It's in the shape of a plant that grows in Marrakesh. It's very beautiful. And every time I wear it, people are like, what is that? It's like, this is the plant that grows in Marrakesh. The plant's not blue. The plant is actually green. But, you know, it's just blue leather it's pretty though it's pretty ring uh, so those those were the things that i wanted to do uh so we did the hot air balloon ride which was wonderful i would tell anybody to sort of do it you really do feel like you're sitting in the hands of god you're up there and i tell people it's not like getting on a roller coaster like you're not blowing around it's not any you go up it's it's very serene it's very quiet up there you know it's very quiet um and it's very peaceful and it's just like you don't even feel that you're moving you know, he's just gliding along. Uh, it's like, you know, it's just it's just a wonderful feeling. And we had a, a, a mother-daughter pilot team. And they're the only mother-daughter pilot team. She, she's the only woman uh, hot air balloon pilot in all of Morocco. So <laughs> go figure. Uh, and she learned in France. 
So her daughter has gone to France and is back and forth getting her license uh, to, to fly hot air balloons. She actually, the mother actually worked for the company as an accountant. And then she just was like, she just felt like, I know so much about these balloons. I think I want to change occupations. And I think she like retired from being an accountant and then stepped right into doing this. And uh, and she was amazing. And she played music for us. And um, she let me pull the, the lever for the heat. The first time she told me to do it, I was scared. I didn't want to do it. I was like, uh-uh, we're not going to go down on my watch, not for me pulling this. But then she coaxed me into it. And it's like, come on, come on, come on. And so I did it. And it was like, whoa. So anyway, it was nice. I, I'm not doing it again. Trust me. I have no desire to fly over nothing else in a hot air balloon. I Listen, for me, it was enough to be on the continent. Now, it is not Senegal. It is not Ghana. It is not Rwanda. It's not anywhere where I, I feel like I want to be in the heart of Africa. But Mar Morocco is going to have to do. It is on the continent. I was on the continent. <laughs> That's good enough. And uh, and I, I've been on a hot air balloon once when I was a kid at the Danbury Fairgrounds, which is now the Danbury Mall. When I was a kid, um, they used to do, I guess, uh, like a fit, like a fit, like the Big E, sort of like it's like you know, state fair. And they used to do it at Danbury Fairgrounds, and so uh, we we got in a hot air balloon, and you know, you just go straight up and you come back down, um, in a in a basket. But you know, I was like sixteen or something, sixteen, seven. I mean, I was young, so so I wanted to I wanted to like do it at sixty and be done. And I'm glad I did it. I'm glad my friends rocked with me and went up. And like Lauren was deathly afraid, but she trooped that thing out. I mean, she really did. I mean, she she really was afraid, but she she pushed past her fears and she got into it. Uh, and I, I appreciate it. I was afraid too, but I never let fear get the best of me on stuff that I really want to do. So I just like, all right, whatever, I'm afraid. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> So, and, and that's, and that's how it went down. So, so yeah, so I got to do all the things that I wanted to do. Um, um, Markeisha and Lauren went to the, to the Contemporary Museum of uh, African uh, Culture. And I, I didn't get a chance to go because I don't think I was well that day or whatever. I was tired or something. But I did go to the Museum of Adornment. And the Museum of Adornment is all about Africa's um, uh, uh, gift to the world of jewelry making. You know, like all jewelry making stem from Africa, from the artisans of Africa. And they clearly show you how that is so, whether it's jewelry makers of Asia, um, Eastern Europe, uh, uh, indigenous, it, it all harks back from Africa. And uh, it was it was wonderful. So. So yeah, I was just like, all right, all right, I'm I'm good with that. So so anyway, so that was the thing. So so the the trip was I wanted to stay at Jeanne Thompson, Jeannan Thompson, that is one hot air balloon night market, um, and the uh, and the uh, and the contemporary museum. Now we 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 went to uh to the gardens of uh, 
I want to say Yves Saint Laurent. I think he, who, who had a house in Marrakesh? Anyway, the house is now a museum and the gardens are, uh, uh, the gardens are, 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 the grounds are now a public garden. The house is a public space. And, uh, uh, and it's beautiful. Lot, lot, it's a lot of walking. <laughs> and I tell you what else is big in uh, Marrakesh, a rooftop uh, restaurants. They they love a good ass rooftop restaurant. I, I don't know what I don't know why that is so, um, but they love a rooftop and and beautiful rooftop. You go up in these spaces and don't look for an elevator because there are none. Um, but rooftop. Uh, restaurants and bars, perfect. Now, women are not allowed to go into bars, bars proper. Um, they're not allowed to go into bars proper. But if you're in a hotel, you can go to a hotel bar. If you're in a restaurant, you can be in a restaurant bar. But you can't go to a bar bar. You know, like Cheers. You know how like if Cheers was on the street, you couldn't go into Cheers. But if Cheers was in the Westin, you're free to go in there. Um, so we were in uh, Marrakesh and Michael Jordan was in Marrakesh too. So we kept crisscrossing wherever he was, you know, because people were, people. I think people were asking us, were we with, were we with them? Like, hell no. Like all black people ain't traveling together. <laughs> I know, I know what you're thinking, but no, we wasn't with Michael Jordan. And let me tell you something. If we were, you'd know about it. Well, we had a good ass time. So uh, we had a really good time. Uh, I'm still thinking about that trip. So anyway, um, Professor Foreman and his wife are going. I think they leave tonight or something or other. And uh, and they, they will have a good time. And, and, you know, let me tell you something about Marrakesh. It is very affordable. You know, um, when you get out to the airport, you just go change over some money. You know, a little bit of money. I don't know. I must have changed over like $200 or something. And then you can use your ATM card too. I mean, if you let your bank know, I don't know what, you know, like I have to let my bank know when I, when I'm out the country, because you know, everybody's so sensitive to fraud and not, rightly so. I'm not mad about that. Like be sensitive to it. Um, but you know, we went to the ATM machine and uh, you know, you could take money out too. So we did that. And, and it, it didn't, I, I didn't even spend all the money that I took out. Because things are so inexpensive, it's ridiculous. It's almost embarrassing, really. Because <laughs> we're so not used to things being so cheap. You know, like we were, we were, um, we had one rooftop um, restaurant for dinner, and we were just popping bottles. And it was like some, we thought it was going to be like $1,000 or some old mess. It didn't even come close. So we were like, what? <laughs> are you sure you got all these bottles? You know, pop bottles and bottles and bottles. And they were like, oh, no, no, this is what it is. I was like, okay. And then we left a good-ass tip. You know, it was good. We had a good time. A lot of, lot of good time. So, and it, at Marrakesh is a place you could wander. I would take a guide. I, I, For me, for me, I like having a guide who can speak the language. Now, of course, you know, when you go with a guide, they're going to take you to the places that they people work at and they people know. And, you know, like we went to the pharmacy. You know, going to the pharmacy is a hustle. You know, you go and you buy, you know, they want to show you all the oils and the soaps. You get a whole little conversation, a little talk about, you know, the benefits of this stuff and that. 
And that was fine. Actually, it was kind of nice after a day of walking around, you know, and all that other kind of stuff. You sit in the pharmacy, they bring you some tea, then they show you all the soaps and you you buy some stuff. Everybody left. I bought I bought lotion, I bought soaps, I bought oils. Um that that lasted me a good while um since the trip. I I I mean I like rose soap, so I bought a couple of bars of rose soap. I bought some lotion that I really, really liked. I should have told Ify to get me some of that damn lotion <laughs> that, I, that I love so much. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, and then, you know, you buy stuff and then you, you know, the, uh, the, my, the other, the, uh, 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 the other folks that we were traveling with, they, they went to the pharmacy um, and then they went to see where rugs were made and some of them bought rugs. We didn't do that because we were pressed for time. So we told our driver, no, we don't got time to go see the, the, uh, the artisans make stuff. So we didn't, we didn't get that experience, but the other groups, cause everybody had their own little groups that they were rocking with, hanging out with, which was fine, which was perfectly fine. Um, and so they went to the place where, where women were making rugs and stuff. And some of them bought rugs. Uh, Eric Clemens bought furniture <laughs> and it, and it was delivered. I was like, all right. I still haven't seen, I seen a picture of it. I haven't seen it, but yeah, he bought a table. He bought a table, a screen. Um, a couple of folks bought rugs, you know, so I didn't, I didn't buy anything like that. I was like, okay. I was like, all right, all right, all right. All right. So I just left it alone. And uh, I just was like, all right. So, and, uh, like Marquisha was doing some damn good shopping, and you know some and my some of them, uh, I got like two caftans, uh, one one from uh, the friends friends who were with me there as birthday presents. So I got two caftans, uh, uh, a pair of shoes that I uh, that Marquisha brought me for my for my birthday that I wore with my gown because they were pink, and. Uh, and then I bought a pair, I bought a pair off of her, um, some other ones, you know, these little mules, because they're so cute, you know, thin little mules. So, and they were so inexpensive and they're so pretty. So I was like, all right. So had I, had I had more sense, I would have did way more shopping. So anyway, I'm, I'm just saying that to, uh, to, to, to the foremans that they, you know, buy some stuff. You, you won't be disappointed. And there's stuff for men to buy too, because Dory brought her husband some stuff, you know, and uh, he was quite pleased. So you know, you just don't want to be over there, and not, you know, because you, you know, when are you going back? Like you're not gonna, gonna like get up and run over there and go back. So you might as well just get all the things, you know, and not break the bank. And I travel light, right? Like I don't check bag, I don't check luggage, I don't do any of that. Although I'm, I think I might have to check luggage when I go to Senegal, but I don't. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see how this. We'll see how this goes. I'm. I'm good at. Uh, I'm good at packing. You know, I'm very good at that. So, anyway, um, that's Marrakesh, the mystery and magic of Marrakesh. And yeah, we will go back because we really like Marianne, and we saw Marianne this summer because she was on Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> and I was like, man, if she could open a Janan Thompson and and uh, Martha's Vineyard. Lord have mercy. <laughs> Ooh, that is the best, the best, the best, the best. So uh, anyway, 
um, it's always it's, it, was, it was a good time, and I, I happily would uh, I would happily go back, and uh, I am going back because now I have a place to go. So no, Christine Joseph, I'm not going to that. I don't want I don't want to go to political stuff. I'm I'm so into it. Um, so so anyway, that's where we are. Let me let me let me get back into uh today's December first. Can you believe it? It is outrageous. Today is December first. I just caught my breath for November, and here we are. And I don't I don't think I have any guests today. And I believe today is World AIDS Day too, if I'm not mistaken. I do have to go to the gym. You know, I'm committed to this gym business. Oh Lord. Um, yeah, I think today is, I think today is World AIDS Day. I I remember, um, you know, when I worked for AIDS Project New Haven many, many moons ago, uh, I started in the caring cuisine. I was a volunteer because I was disillusioned. I was working in New York in entertainment public relations. And I, I just was hating what I was doing. I went there because I was so excited. I wanted to be in the mix and I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be like in the in the crowd and in the mix. And I wanted to be, you know, it with celebrity. I wanted to be all of that. And when I got into it and I was squarely in it, I just could not. I just was so disillusioned by the behavior of celebrity that I was just like, I have to get out of this. And so when I came back, uh, to New Haven, after I like walked off this job, um, I mean, I literally just walked off, and I I was so disillusioned. I didn't know what I was gonna do because I had uh, I didn't have a job to go back to, so I was like, all right, I figure this out. So I, I I started volunteering at Care and Cuisine, which is you know a meal delivery program um, from AIDS Project New Haven for people who uh, were living with HIV and AIDS. And so I just volunteer. I just started volunteering. I had a car, and uh, I had just met my 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 husband. Um, and um, he was just let me use his car uh, for volunteers. And then he bought me a car. He bought me a car, um, and uh, we got married. Uh, so he bought me a car. So so I just stayed volunteering, uh, delivering meals to people with HIV and AIDS. Uh, and it was so eye-opening how, in those days, people people were living with HIV and AIDS, and they were sick, and they didn't want people to know, uh, because landlords would would start harassing people and want to get them evicted. Um, um, if people's jobs found out they had HIV or AIDS, um, they would get fired. I mean, these these were the like, and these were the days. <laughs> like this was in 1950. You know, this this was like 1990, right? Like this was this is 1988, 1989, 90, 91, 92. Like it was like that, and uh, it was, uh, and it just it just it just gave me a sense of purpose because I just couldn't stand that people were being treated so badly, and the and where people. Where people were living in these uh, apartments that were not legal apartments, you know, people were living in spaces that were not legal, 
And you'd go in there and you like, oh my God. And these people are sick, right? Folks are sick. And uh, and sometimes I'd be the only person they've seen for days. You know, I'd bring them enough food for the weekend, right? You know, like I I think I would do deliveries like Thursday and they'd have enough food to get them to Monday until we, you know, come back around and deliver again. And, you know, we had instructions on how they could heat up their food. And, you know, we made sure we had stuff that um, probably didn't require a whole lot of, you know, messing with. Um, and sometimes I'd be the only human being that they seen all week, you know. And so I would just, you know, I talk, I check in on people. How they doing? Is there any, anything else I could do? You know, can I call somebody, you know, uh, you know, what is happening? Do you need me to talk to somebody for you? Or, I mean, I just got involved. I, that's just the nature. That's just my nature. You know, uh, I, I think I inherited that from my mom. I know I inherited it from my mother. My mother, my mother never had a, my mother never knew strangers. And I think I'm that way too. I, I just don't know strangers. I just think I don't know strangers. You know, um, and my mother was, my mother was very much like that. Like no one was a stranger. <laughs> and I used to get annoyed. I'd be like, well, you don't know them damn people. And here I am, same, same way. Same, same way. I don't know these people. It doesn't matter. My humanity knows them. Um, and so, so um, they hired me to be a, the associate manager of the Karen Cousins. I have a culinary background. So I know how to run a kitchen. I know my way around a kitchen. And I and I know food preparation protocols, right? Because we were working out of the church over there on State Street, which is now surrounded by all those ridiculous apartments on State Street. <laughs> um, and so we had raised some money. We put in a, a commercial kitchen in the bottom of the church basement because um, they had space down there and they let us do it. And we ran, we ran Karen. I don't even know where Karen Cuisine is ran out of. I don't even know if it's still up and running. Um, and so, uh, and so we would run meals out of there. And so I just started coordinating volunteers because I, I had volunteer background. Like I, I knew how to, uh, I, I did youth at risk stuff. So, so I knew how to recruit, train, screen volunteers, um, background checks. Uh, uh, work with the police department on doing background checks, um, finding money to pay for background checks for volunteers, training volunteers, ongoing training volunteers, um, that kind of stuff. And and I and it was purposeful to me, and I enjoyed enjoyed it. I just felt like I was called to it, and it, it's just something I just enjoyed doing. Um, and then and then they asked me if I wanted to revamp the whole volunteer uh, uh, program because they they had. They had a, a, a they had volunteers, but they weren't coordinated, and they had a lot of programs that would just pop up, and people would just jump in and volunteer. Well, you know, when you're working with a vulnerable population, any population, you have to put some protocols in place so people don't do harm when people don't get harmed. You know, uh, so I just came in and just like, okay, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna train people. We're gonna recruit. We're gonna do all these things. Um, um, you know. So that we 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 reduce any incidents of harm because you know people, some people are predatory, and 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 they would get into these organizations so that they could have access to a particular population of people so they could do harm. 
that's why we have volunteer protocols to this day because people are mean and and unconscionable. Um, and so that went well. And then, uh, uh, so I was doing that for a, a good while until until uh, my friend Ron was like, you need to get into this fellowship program, Urban Fellows, National Urban Rural Fellows. And I was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And so I put it off another year and then I finally applied and I got in. Um, and so that, so I left AIDS Project New Haven to go to grad school um, and got my master's at, uh, at Baruch under the National Urban Fellows Program, which was which was wonderful because um, I wouldn't have been able, and they gave me a stipend. You know, a fellowship is a nice thing if you could get it. I mean, it was nice because because uh, I was married and uh, and my husband was considering going to grad school. He was he was uh, working on his undergraduate degree at uh, Albertus. He had already gotten his associates and he was working on his bachelor's. And I knew he wanted to go to grad school. And I knew the both of us could not be in grad school trying to pay for grad school and um, maintain a mortgage and all the cars and whatever. And this was before we even started to build a family. So uh, so, so it was a great plus that I got to go to grad school uh, first and, and on a fellowship with a fellowship. And it was it was such a wonderful experience. It was so, I, uh, David Dinkins, former Mayor Dinkins, was one of my professors. Uh, and it was just a, it was just a wonderful experience to go to school in New York, to to go to grad school in New York. It was it was uh, it was amazing, and you know I got to work in the medical assistance program under under one of the deputy commissioners, and uh, and I was tasked with figuring out the barriers to the medical assistance program, which is essentially you know an entitled entitled pro, entitlement program where people who didn't have insurance could get insurance, could be seen, you know. It's the precursor to what, what we have now. Uh, I think it was the precursor to Obamacare, really. Uh, but New York was unwittingly or deliberately, I, I, I think in my in my uh, capstone, uh, in my dissertation, I think I made the case that they were deliberately um, shutting people out. You know, creating barriers so people would look elsewhere for healthcare, and 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 by look other where other look other places, people just wouldn't bother. You know, and they were doing all manner of stuff, and the stuff that I was finding, and I had this is the craziest part. I don't think they would ever allow this again. But I had complete autonomy to, to go into all the offices, and I would I was in all five boroughs. I would spend time in all five boroughs, and I don't, I don't think anybody would allow this kind of autonomy and access. You know, I had ID and I reported directly to uh uh to 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 uh Giuliani. <laughs> and I only I like saw him maybe, I don't know, a handful of times. Uh I actually reported to a couple of the women in the medical assistance program who reported to him directly. But they would let me go talk to him directly because they'd be like, you go talk to him. Take the little reports and go. <laughs> And so I I'd be in the meetings and I'd be like, all right, here, this is what I found out. And 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 they were annoyed um because they didn't they didn't want this to become a press thing that uh they had all these barriers. <laughs> Swear to God. So anyway, uh they used my capstone as a as a way to shift policy on how they um how they handled uh uh entitlement, uh, health 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 care entitlements for the city of New York. And they wanted me to come, uh, when I graduated, they they recruited me to come and run the program, you know, like 
pilot a new program to oversee this kind of stuff. But New York City has a rule. You have to live in New York City to work in city government. And, you know, we were living in City Point. My then husband was like, uh, we can't maintain two households. <laughs> and for a minute, we were considering it because we we went we went into the city. We went into Harlem. We looked at a couple of brownstones that were for sale. They had a um, somebody from the mayor's office sent me uh, a program uh, for uh, uh, they was trying to, you know, this uh, revitalization of Harlem, parts of Harlem. And so they sent. um so they had this program where you buy this brownstone and you could get money to renovate it, you know. Uh, and, you know, we were so green, my husband, my then husband and I, we were so green. So we went to see these brownstones, child, you know, in our minds, we're thinking, oh, we're going to get something. We go, uh, girl, we, I mean, listen, folks, we get down there and these things are burnt out. I mean, I just, this was before HGTV. This was before fixer upper this is before any kind of oh look what you can do with sweat equity and i came from a, vo a vocational background so i'm no stranger to stuff right like tech stuff and building and stuff like that i mean i came from a a, a vocational technical high school so we, you know we I, I went to school with plumbers and carpenters and electricians and all all manner of stuff because they'd be working on houses and projects and stuff and we just could not grasp a vision for a brownstone that was just so burnt out. And we were like, I don't think we could take this on. And they were throwing like $500,000 at us, you know, at anybody who would take this on. And don't you know, many years after that, you know, we went back into that same neighborhood and now those brownstones are going for like two and $3 million. <laughs> And it, here's the thing. So if you would have gotten one, you would have gotten the loan or whatever it was. It was a grant. It would have been forgiven. Like you wouldn't have had to pay it back. They would have given you like 500000 like some ridiculous amount of money to do the rent. I mean, you would have you would have had to like take the 500000 and then put another like quarter of a million dollars in. So you would you would get a mortgage for like a quarter of a million dollars, that kind of thing. And we just thought that was just overwhelming. <laughs> You're like quarter of a million dollars. Well, listen, it's only two hundred fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> I paid. I paid about that for for my house on Bellevue by my damn self. So I was like, oh. So we, you know, we laugh about that every now and again when I talk to him. We like remember we looked at those brownstones. We were like, uh, uh, we couldn't see it. And we go down that neighborhood now, and these brownstones are three, four, five million dollars. It's just the craziest thing, but we didn't. We had no, we had no knowledge or no point of reference. Uh, so anyway, uh, so I when I left AIDS Project New Haven, I spent my time at uh, uh, in New York uh, in grad school, and it was wonderful. It was a wonderful experience, and I and I I thought I would live in New York, you know, but that rule, I just we just couldn't we just couldn't break that. We just couldn't break that rule, and I mean they wasn't gonna let me break that rule. So we were like, well, maybe we get a little tiny closet of an apartment and that would suffice and we could keep our house in New Haven. You know, that's what people do. But, but then we just thought that would be a heavy lift, you know. Um, and so we didn't do it. So when I graduated, I came back to Connecticut and um, Bill Dyson got me a job at the uh, commission, Connecticut Commission on National Service. They were piloting a, 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 a AmeriCorps program, AmeriCorps oversight program 
in response to Colin Powell's and um, um, George George W. Bush's um, uh, uh, commitment to uh, what children need and mentorship. And mentorship was a whole big big thing. Um, and and so uh, General Colin Powell is asking every state to commit to uh, um, providing oversight to mentoring programs. And and the way to do that was through the AmeriCorps program. And, and at that time, Connecticut was flushed with the AmeriCorps programs, the Jumpstart for Young Children, which I left um, the Connecticut Commission to run in New Haven. Uh, and and um, LEAP was an AmeriCorps program. So we were all starting out at the same time, me and, me and Henry Fernandez. And for a minute there, me and Henry Fernandez, our lives were very parallel. Like, you know, we, we were neck and neck. Uh, it, our lives were just crisscrossing all the time, you know, before he was married, you know, we were just, you know, we would meet up and talk and strategize. And I mean, we were just, we were just, we were just like friends and, and, uh, you know, he's a, he's an attorney. Um, he was, he graduated from law school and here I am trying to go to law school. So our lives are still sort of intersecting with each other. Um, so, yeah, so I, I was in Hartford working on the, uh, uh, on, on, AmeriCorps oversight programs, and I I enjoyed that. I I got the inventory and 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 I get I got to um spearhead the uh the uh the uh the uh, Connecticut State Employees Mentorship Programs. So what it was, and it was it is legislation that said, uh, and it got passed that said um for every week of for every couple of hours, however so many forty hours of volunteer time that Connecticut employees got they get a week vacation on you know for their time and i think we were like the only ones in the country to do it so i got to go around the country talking about this in different places you know like how we did it and stuff like that i got to produce a uh a psa uh uh for it so i so i had a good time it only lasted a year i i think it lasted a year because the woman that was running the program who was the executive director of the commission on national community service she was one of these white women that just was unsure of her skill set and ability so that anybody that came within a hundred feet of her that had talent, she would do her best to uh, um, undo them. And so she, I, you know, I was naive in those days. I, I just didn't believe anybody was like carrying on that way until I overheard her. She didn't know I was in the office. I overheard her talking about me <laughs> i was so wounded i i was so wounded she was like oh you know if she thinks she's gonna come in here and blah blah i mean she was talking cash ish about me <laughs> and uh and i overheard her and she didn't she didn't even know i was i was like in the space to overhear her you know um she was just she was just a piece of work um, she was just, I, that was my first, my first encounter with a white woman who was treacherous, deliberately treacherous. And I, I just didn't know how to handle it. And I was just so emotional and, you know, I couldn't figure, I, I was not, I wasn't, I did not have the skill set to sort of battle this intellectually. Uh, Cause I have a strong mind. I had a fine mind. It just wasn't cultivated. You know, and I didn't have any mentors, but best you believe right after that, I got some folks 
And they were like, come here, let me, let me, let me mentor you up. And so I had some people who, you know, like Tony Harp was one of those people that mentored me up. I mean, it was a lot of people who had their hands on me, B. Dozier Taylor, like people, people really helped framed how I could be in the world and, and be unafraid and be bold and, and not be afraid to speak up. And that was, th those were good moments. Uh, uh, and I, and I never had anybody to, to, to treat me that way ever again. And some have tried it, but I was prepared. You know, I was just prepared. And uh, it was, uh, it was a little, it was a discuss. I mean, no, I had one other white woman who, who, who um, tried to do me in too when I was at AIDS Project New Haven. And, uh, and, you know, full circle moment. When I came back, when I came back from Danbury, uh, I had gotten a scholarship to the School of Spirituality at um, at the Mercy Center. I had gotten it before I went to Danbury, but I couldn't go because I had to go to Danbury. And so when I got out, they extended the fellow the scholarship. Um, and then uh, the woman that I was at odds with at AIDS Project New Haven, uh, she was in the uh, she was in the program. <laughs> And let me tell you, we were contentious when we when we were at AIDS Project New Haven. Um, by the time we finished uh, the School of Spirituality, we we were we were friends, and uh, it was a very full circle moment. And you know, and I think this is an appropriate time to sort of say that God, in His infinite, in her, in their infinite wisdom, um, just had opportunities for me to go back and fix some things. And there are a great many moments of epiphany and great many moments of uh, uh, turn back around uh, for me in my life. And that was one of them. Uh, and, and I can plot chart all those moments where I got to go back and either make things right with people or end things with people or close things with people. Uh, and that has been really, uh, that is really uh, the mark of noticing where God is in your life. So so anyway, uh, yeah, that's my uh, that's my World AIDS Day, long long winded, around the world story. And when I come back from break, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some stats on uh, uh, on World AIDS Day and where we are, because people think out of sight, out of mind, you know that somehow or other AIDS is no longer with us, but it pretty much is. <laughs> It's, it's still pretty much, you know, it's, you know, 35 years since the AIDS, HIV AIDS epidemic, 35 years. Uh, and it's still very much with us. People are living longer. It is no longer the death sentence that it was when it first came on the scene. It is no longer uh, a gay white men's disease. It really is a people of color um, disease, although it is starting to rear, numbers are starting to rise in the, in the gay community. And so we have to remind people that safety that there's still safety protocols in place so that you can live longer. But there are medications that are uh, pretty much eradicating HIV out of people's systems, you know, getting numbers so low that it is uh, almost undetectable. So, um, so we've come a long way. We've come a long, long way. So I'll talk a little bit more about that when I, when I come back um, from taking a little bit of a break. So I'll be back.
If your home was built before 1978, your paint or even the soil around your home could contain lead. Lead paint can harm young children, affecting their kidneys and brain, slowing a child's growth and making learning difficult. But lead poisoning is 100% preventable. We have funding to keep you and your family safe. To learn more about our program, visit nhvhealth.org. Together, New Haven, we can get the lead out. Hi, this is Babs Rawls-Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut, and you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org.
I'm going to send this out to anybody that's missing anybody right now that you would wish was home, sitting around the family dinner table, around the Christmas tree, laughing to share memories. We're going to sing Amazing Grace for them. Come on. See you. 
Life is bitter and sweet, everything in between. So I'll make the most of what's here. But Christmas feels different. Yeah, this Christmas feels different. Christmas feels different. Just like the ones I knew 
Welcome back to the second hour of Love Babs Love Talk. I'm Babs Rose Ivy. Hey, it is a World's Age Day, and uh, normally I would have on a red ribbon, and I have them. I have actually a permanent ribbon, which I don't know what the hell I did with it. I pulled it so that I could put it on, and now uh, I don't know what I did with it. <laughs> so ain't that always the way? I was like, oh, let me let me pull it let me pull it out for. Uh, let me pull it out for just this occasion, and then I don't know where the hell I put it. Uh, I don't know what the theme. Let me see what the theme is. Let communities lead. So we already know nothing about us without us. That seems to be a slogan for just about everybody. Um, not ending AIDS is more expensive than ending it. And remove laws that harm and create laws that empower. So these are the calls to action. Right, so engage community leadership and in all HIV plans and programs, uh, fully fund sustainable community leadership and support civil society with robust, robust uh, regulation. I mean, we, you know, AIDS, a HIV and AIDS is still very much with us. You know, even though we've made great strides in science and medicine, um, we cannot lose the fact that there is no cure. You know, and even though we've been able to sustain people's lives, people are living longer and more fully, um, there is uh, there is no cure. So I'm just saying. Uh, so let me give you some fact sheets because I want y'all to hear me. So as of uh, July 2023, uh, HIV remains a major global public health issue having claimed 40.4 million uh, uh, lives so far with ongoing transmission in all countries globally, with some countries reporting increasing trends in new infections when previously on the decline, okay? Uh, there was an estimated 39, point, uh, 39 million people living with HIV at the end of 2022, and two-thirds of whom which is 25.6 million, are in the uh, uh, World Health Organization uh, African region. In uh, 2022, 630,000 people died from HIV-related causes and 1.3 million people acquired HIV. So these numbers are still ridiculously high, even though we are not seeing public public service announcements uh, uh, telling us uh, this information. There is no cure for HIV infection. However, with access to effective HIV prevention, diagnosis, treatment, and care, including uh, for opp opportunistic infections, uh, HIV infection has become a manageable chronic health condition, uh, enabling people living with HIV to lead long and healthy lives who, uh, the World Health Organization, the Global Fund, and uh, UNAIDS all have global HIV strategies that are aligned with the SDG target 3.3, ending the HIV epidemic by 2030. By 2025, 90% of all the people living with HIV um, should have a diagnosis. 95% of those should be taking life-saving anti- retroviral treatment and 95% of the 
uh, people living with HIV on treatment should achieve a suppressed viral load for the benefit of the person's health and for reducing onward HIV transmission. In 2022, these percentages were 86% and 93% respectively. So when considering all people living with HIV knew their status, 76% were receiving antiretroviral therapy and 71% had suppressed viral loads, okay? So human, so HIV is an infection that attacks the body's immune system, acquired uh, immune deficiency syndrome, AIDS, is the most advanced stage of the disease. HIV targets the body's white blood cells, weakening the immune system. This makes it easier to get sick with diseases like tuberculosis, infections, and some cancers. And HIV is spread from body, body fluids of an infected person, including blood, breast milk, semen, vaginal fluids. It's not spread by kisses, hugs, or sharing food. It can also be spread from a mother to a baby. So this is stuff that we learned. We've learned this, but I just want to remind you, HIV can be treated and prevented with antiretroviral therapy. Untreated HIV can progress to AIDS, often after many years. So the WHO now defines advanced HIV as CD4 cell count, less than 200 cells, or um, WHO stage three or four in adults and adolescents. All children with HIV uh, younger than five years of age are considered to have advanced HIV. So just I'm just, you know, food for thought. Know your status. And uh, I used to get tested every year, uh, you know, just because I worked for AIDS Project New Haven. And I wanted to make it, I wanted people to see me getting tested so that it would make it all right for other people to get tested. You know, God knows I came through the 80s. So I'm always grateful that I don't know how I missed it, but thank God. I'm just saying. <laughs> There is a God for some of us. So, um, but yeah, I mean, today's World AIDS Day. Uh, and we're still affected by this. And I, I want people to just be aware of this, right? Uh I, I wanna I want people to uh to be thinking about this. And if you don't think about this no other day, today would be a perfect day to think about it. And and if you can make a donation, make a donation somewhere to an AIDS serving organization. Right. And even though we, we feel like, um, uh, you know, we, we don't have to worry too much. Uh, it's still very much with us. So I'm just saying. I'm just saying, just be mindful. Uh, protection, prevention, prevention is the best protection. Um, when you have protection, be preventive. Uh, think about that. Seriously, though, 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 we have to be thinking like that. Um, so I don't know if they, if they, if they're gathering on the green. I know in years past, when I was more connected to it, uh, you know, we'd celebrate World AIDS Day on the green, speeches and conversation and sharing of information, awareness raising, that kind of stuff. Uh, but I didn't hear anything on the news about it because normally they'll say, you know. Maybe they'll get to it this evening, 
like they'll say, well, this is what we did for World AIDS Day. Do you know what I mean? So uh, World AIDS Day, uh, 35 years, uh, 35, 35 years. Uh, and and the theme is remember and commit. That's the theme. Just FYI. I was trying to figure out what the theme was. I see it. World, World AIDS Day 35, remember and commit. So, so every year on December 1st, the world uh, unites to commemorate World AIDS Day. And this annual event serves as a reminder of the global struggle to end HIV-related stigma, an opportunity to honor those we have lost, and a rallying cry to continue working toward a day when HIV is no longer a public health threat. In 2023, we marked the 35th commemoration of this important date with the theme World's AIDS Day 35, uh, Remember and Commit. So, so the first World AIDS, AIDS Day took place in 1988, providing a platform to raise awareness about HIV and AIDS and honor the lives affected by the epidemic. And so over the past 35 years, we've, we've witnessed a significant progress in addressing HIV and AIDS thanks to advancements in medical research and increased access to treatment and prevention and, and a broader understanding of the virus. We have also seen a tremendous uh, a tremendous global advocacy community unite to take on challenges and hold institutions accountable for ensuring to these advances advancements. We ain't, we ain't out of danger yet, people. We still have to be very diligent. You know, we 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 have to be diligent. Um, and and we have to we have to you know and it's not just talking to young people it's talking to all people anybody who is out there who uh, uh, who might be sexually active uh, who might be uh, needle sharing who might be uh, uh, bodily fluid swapping all the things um, that we need to stay vigil and uh, and uh, diligent. Vigilant and diligent, because it is still very much with us. And uh, I don't want to uh, see us go back to the days of those late '80s when fear uh, was uh, was the order of the day, you know. And you know, and listen, if the pandemic didn't teach us anything, that we have to rely and depend on science and not be driven and rooted in emotion and ignorance. That is the science that will help us move forward. Um, and we've been at this 35 years, so we've got a good sense of what what we can do and what what stops this, you know. But we still need people to be all hands on deck. We need people to still be concerned about HIV and AIDS. I'm concerned about it, and I'm 60 years old. I'm concerned about it. I have to be, you know. My sexual health is still at risk. So I have to make sure, you know. Now, I'm not saying I'm testing people at the door. <laughs> it has not come to that. <laughs> and I, I don't, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because this is, this is real talk. This is real talk. So, and, uh, you know. Those of us that have been in the in the in the you know have have been tending to our sexual health for the better part of our lives as adult women as adult people 
you know, preventing pregnancies and preventing STDs and all the things. Uh, and we're still, you know, at this age that I am, you know, still sexually active and still concerned. I still have to protect myself. And I want to say this to other seniors. Oh, I'm a senior now. I'm going to say this to other seniors that that you 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 do not get a pass because you are a senior. Like you still you still have to have an arsenal of condoms uh and barriers uh for yourself. And anybody out there that thinks because well I can't get pregnant, pregnancy is the least of your worries. It's, I'm not worried about getting pregnant neither, but I am worried about a uh a, a STD that could kill me that there's no cure for. No, I'm I'm not trying to go down that road. And I don't want you to go down that road. So listen up, old players. <laughs> Don't be out there having unprotected sex. That is just not a good look. I don't care how old you are. And you don't really know people. You just don't. So, you know. And, you know, watching these Bachelor shows, like the Golden Bachelor, you know, he running up on chicks. And, I, yeah, he in good health. Dude, he got condoms, though, because he'd be sleeping with all these chicks. You know, I wonder if they run them through a medical medical testing. I bet you they do if I look at the fine print. You know, you have to commit to all the to all the stuff because they don't want that on their watch. I don't know why I segued into that. I think because I just watched the other last night or this morning he picked somebody. He was a little on the asshole side, but that I, I ain't in that game. So I, I wonder who they're going to pick. I guess the next Golden Bachelor would be a woman, I would imagine. I just, I hate the fact that people are prizes. <laughs> I, you can't convince me otherwise of these shows. And I've watched them from time to time. I watched the first Black Bachelor who married, you know, the little antebellum racist girl. <laughs> or I don't know if they married, but dating her or whatever. I mean, of course, all those women, and he picks her. I know he's going to pick her because that's the one he can manipulate. <laughs> I ain't no fool. I, I already saw what she was doing because you had doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, and you picked this little pumpkin. Okay. Who, you know, whatever. I know why you picked her. You know why you picked her too. So, and you know, his mama was in the bachelor. She got eliminated though. So. Anyway, I'm not, you know, whatever. I'm just saying, just, just, it's World AIDS Day. Be, be responsible. Think about, think about your, your, uh, your life and your health. And even though, uh, medical technology is such, you know, that people are living longer and more fully, uh, and, and much more managed, uh, with, uh, HIV and AIDS. Um, well, let's let's not seek to get it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like we we just gonna we just gonna not seek to get it. We're gonna do all that we can. And I and I'm talking to I'm talking to seniors, anybody over forty, you know, or you know, everybody who, particularly women who are out of childbearing age, who think they're only they're only concerned about unprotected sex is you know menopause babies and stuff like that no 
you can do something about a menopause baby. You can't do anything about HIV and AIDS except, you know, get diagnosed early and take medication for the rest of your life. And because uh, there's no cure. So so I'm talking to my fellow seniors, seniors out there who are active, like being active. The, the same rules that uh, that apply at, at, at 18 and, you know, 16 and 20 and 40 and 30, whatever, whatever it was when you was at your peak and discovery and your discovery. Um, now that you're in your 60s and beyond, uh, the same the same rules apply. <laughs> you're not you're not out of danger. <laughs> there is no safe platform for this. You you still have to be uh, you still have to protect yourself. You still have to protect yourself. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what's required, you know, <laughs> that is what's required. And I, and I think if you, if you want to have, uh, a robust sex life, then you, you've got to consider all these things. It's, you know, it's not just like in the movies where you're just like, oh, I fall in love, you fall in bed. No, there's things you have to think about before you do all that, you know, for safety and precaution and protection. There are things that you have to do. And I think we have to have these real conversations, particularly with senior citizens, because I really do believe senior citizens think, well, I'm out of that range now. I, it's different. Nope. It is not. If if anything, it's probably it's probably worse. You know, it's probably it's probably worse. And uh, and I just want people to I just want people to to. Uh, take care of themselves and uh, and and be good to themselves you know be very good good to themselves and uh, and I and I want people to uh, treasure their sexual re their sexual health in a way that they treasure other things and that uh, you know that you can have ro a robust sex life. Um, safely and 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 with all the necessary precautions in place. So I I, I want to say that, you know. So just be mindful. <laughs> just 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 be mindful, saints. You know, just be mindful. I was trying to look for some demographics. Um. Uh, and I'm just trying to, because you might think, well, if 70% were, if 70% of new infections are among gay, bisexual, and other men who reported male-to-male -male sexual contact, that means there's a whole 30% of other out there. And do you fall into that? 22% were among people who reported heterosexual contact. And then 8% were among people who inject drugs. So so that that's a that's a wide that's a wide wide gap there. Like that's that's a that's not cracks. You know. So uh by age group uh people age 13 to 34 accounted for 58% uh of the new Three thirty-two thousand one hundred new HIV infections in twenty twenty-one. So, uh, uh, 
No changes were detected in persons 25 to 34, 35 to 44, 54, and 55 plus. So, uh, so, so that's still, uh, that, I mean, we're still in the mix. And then you throw race in there. <laughs> oh, Lord. You know, black people are 40%. You know. Uh, and then uh, Latinos are uh, uh, 29%. Hispanic and Latinos are 29%. White folks are 26%. So the highest... Uh, in 2021, the highest rates of new infections were among Black African Americans, uh, Hispanic, Latino, and uh, and then people who are of multiple races. You know, we make up 12 percent of the, Black people make up 12 percent of the population. So I mean, you know what I mean? Like, so that's I find that kind of stuff sobering. You know, but I I, I find that quite sobering. So we we just gotta we just have to take better care. And today will be a good day to just re re reacquaint yourself, reconnect yourself, and remember that uh, HIV and AIDS is very much present, um, and that you still have to take necessary precautions um, to enjoy a robust and healthy sex life. You know, and uh, don't you don't share needles. <laughs> Don't don't do it. And I know there was some conversation around in New Haven about creating um, shoot up places or places where people can safely um, um, do intravenous drugs safely and and discard of needles safely. And I know people got their ire up about it. I I know I know people are are behind are you know just mad. And I don't, I don't understand what the madness is. You just, you know, whatever the times call for, um, then you, you meet the call. And other people are like, oh, well, why can't we? Well, why can't we? I, I'm not an intravenous drug user, nor will I become one because they opened up a place where intravenous drug users could go safely, um, um, do what they're going to do. And uh, I don't feel no kind of way about it in the sense that I I I I don't think it opens the door for people to use drugs. I I don't I think people who use drugs use drugs. I'm not gonna wake up tomorrow and be like, oh, I have a hankering for heroin. It's unlikely, <laughs> so unlikely. It's a no, you know. So I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I know people sort of think that way, that if we just allow more people will feel like it's okay to sort of do. I I don't know those people. And I'm not saying that they don't exist, that they that there won't be somebody out there that's like, well, listen, there's safe places where you could go do this. Let me go try it. I, I'm sure there's a tiny, tiny, minuscule population of people who will have that thinking. You know, it's the same people who you have to put, you know, on bleach containers, don't drink. <laughs> I, I do think that. I, I don't know anybody who wakes up and be like, oh, let me go do heroin. I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and be like, oh, let me go get me a pack of cigarettes. 
that's just not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not even going to go to dispensaries and be like, I'm going to get some pot. I have friends who do it. And when they get it, I get it, right? Like I, I've done gummies, smoked a little pot, whatever. It's fine. I don't, I don't think that that's problematic either. Plus, plus, I, you know, marijuana is not a gateway drug. I, people like to say that mess. I don't know anybody who does pot and feels the need to go rob banks, stick up people, you know, or any or any of that kind. I've never seen it in my whole life. And I'm 60 years old. I've never seen anybody get high on pot and want to go do crazy stuff. I've just never seen it. Now, I've seen people do other drugs and just really do stupid, stupid, stupid stuff. You know, I don't get that. First of all, I'm not a get high person like that. That does not appeal to me. I've never let drugs have that kind of hold or fascination. I never was that person. First of all, I don't like to be high. That's number one. People who are high don't have no control over their brain or their their whatever. I'm not talking about when you're at your house and you're chilling, you want to smoke a joint or whatever. I'm talking about people who have to smoke every damn day, all day to get through the day. <laughs> I find that problematic. <laughs> I'm not making a judgment. I'm just saying I find it problematic. Like what is going on in your life that that, that that's how you got to get through your life. I'll say that with anything. If you got chronic pain and you are taking ibuprofen or, or acetaminophen all day, every day, or whatever it is that you take, you got to address what the under root problem is. So anyway, I say all that to say all the stuff is connected. I don't have a problem with people who are having a safe place if they're going to, because we know that addiction is a real thing and it's a very compelling, life-changing, life-destroying thing. And, and here's, this is where I'm at. And this is definitively where I'm at. Until we are willing, and by willing, I mean funding, uh, uh, access to resources for people to deal with their addictions, then we cannot, we cannot turn our nose up at um, Band-Aids because we're not willing to deal with the wound. So until we are willing to deal with the wound, Band-Aids are going to have to suffice. So until we say we no longer want Band-Aids, we want real, real healing, then okay. But we can't say we don't even want Band-Aids and then people are out here creating havoc and, 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 you know, we can't have it both ways. So, you know, that's where we are. We have to, we have to make a decision as a society to say, what is in our best interest? I mean, we, and we've already, we've already done some of this work on a lot of other, other areas of quality of life matters. You know, we've already, we've already done this work. Um, and so uh, I, 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 I think, uh, uh, drug addiction addiction is like the last frontier of, of of the social stuff that we need to contend with. But we 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 just seem to wanna we don't like the band-aid, but we don't like the healing either. So we don't want to fund the healing and we don't want to fund the band-aids. And we just think people are gonna what? Have some kind of epiphany and abracadabra, I'm no longer my addictions are gone. 
No, people are suffering. And we, and we seem to think that the suffering is, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know what people think addiction is, you know, I think people think addiction is a weakness. And I think some of it is, I think it, some of that is true, but not, not in the ways that people think, not, not a moral failing. I don't think it's a moral failing. <laughs> I think it's, I think there's, I think there's a lot of uh, uh, psychological stuff. I think it's uh, physiological stuff. You know, I think it's a, I think it's a lot of things. I don't think it's one, one thing. I, I damn sure know it's not a moral fail, failing because I don't know anybody who would want to walk down this road deliberately if they could help it. You know, so that's where we, we gotta, we gotta be uh, open to the band-aids as well as um, closing the wounds. And if, uh, and, and, and I personally, I think we could do both, but we don't seem to want to do both. You know, we kind of want to have to do some, have to do some, you know, and and if there is some, some way to close the wounds, it, it costs, it's expensive, you know, um, it's expensive and, and hard to, to get at. So, so anyway, there's a lot to contend with on World AIDS Day, you know, it's World AIDS Day, it's uh, the season of Advent, uh, it's December 1st, it's, it's all these things that can put us into a contemplative and discerning place um, as we move into 2024, you know, as we move into 2024. And I, and I think this is a good use of time um, for this December. I think it's a wonderful use of time to start to think about how do we move into the new year and, and what do we want to take into the new year and what new things that we want to tackle in the new years that are personal, that are community, that are, are you know, like, what is it that our family in, in, uh, uh, generated? You know, how do we want to show up in 2024 collectively and, and individually? You know, how do we want to do that? And so this is a good time to do that. So use World AIDS Day as a jump off point to think about uh, uh, your, your sexual health. Um, use World AIDS Day to raise some awareness about who is uh, still affected and affected by HIV and AIDS. Uh, use this day to reconnect to your spiritual self. Um, notice uh, God in the, uh, in the everyday, practical, ordinary parts of the day. You know, so there's a lot to unpack here and, uh, and we will do it together. So I will be back. So Harry, I do not have a colonoscopy schedule for Monday. So I will be on air Monday because my, my doctor's office, uh, canceled. And so I'm rescheduled for January. I'll keep you posted. <laughs> so I'll be back here on Monday. I'll see y'all on Monday. Have a good weekend and, uh, be fabulous out there.
Can't wait another minute just to give you that magic signal. 